0: These men have just been subjected to a grave injustice. They've been arrested and denied their rights and treated as criminals without any sort of due process, despite that they've done nothing wrong. And here they are praying and singing hymns to God. They're not, not texting their lawyers. They're not screaming bloody murder. They're praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. There is no better witness than calmly and graciously enduring injustice because it strongly hints at an inheritance in the
1: heavenlies. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. There is no better witness than calmly and graciously enduring injustice. Whether that was part of the plan or not, it is definitely a part of the story that we are exploring here in the book of Acts. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you
0: today to Acts chapter 16. You will recall that the bulk of chapter 15 is taken up with the narrative of the Jerusalem council. The church needed to figure out how to handle this massive influx of Gentile converts. Did they need to become Jews before they became Christians? That was basically the issue. And this had to get sorted out because it had massive implications for the gospel itself. Are we saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone? Or do we need to add circumcision and kosher eating and a variety of other Old Testament ceremonial observances. By what means are people accepted before God? That was the question that the conversion of all these Gentiles forced the church to consider. By the way, just pause and appreciate that. Very often in the history of the church, we have only clarified our theology when it has been challenged by some sort of unforeseen circumstance. Challenges, both circumstantial and theological, force us to get precise in our thinking. By and large, we tend to lean towards sloppiness, and we only tend to carefully clarify and state our beliefs when they are challenged from either the inside or the outside. So, conflict and challenge can, in fact, be a real blessing to the church. This was a conversation that needed to happen, and it did happen and the church on the other side was much better for it. You'll remember that a unified statement was produced by the council and that it was addressed generally to the Gentile churches of the wider world. At the end of Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas decide that it'd be a good time to go back over the territory they had covered in their first missionary journey in order to encourage the new converts and to relay to them the decision of the council. Unfortunately, Paul and Barnabas couldn't agree on the specifics of their plan. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. Paul was worried that he had disqualified himself by failing to complete the first journey. Rather than fight it out to conclusion, they decided to divide up the route. Barnabas and Mark took the southern part. Paul and Silas went north over land and then west into the northern part of the territory. The book of Acts now tracks entirely with the apostle Paul. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Here we meet a young man named Timothy, who will, of course, become a very important player in the rest of the story. Timothy will become one of the most notable of Paul's protégés. Paul will send him on critical missions. He will serve as Paul's ambassador to troubled churches. And he'll even become a pastor in his own right later in life. Obviously, Timothy was a convert of Paul's on his first missionary trip through Lystra. And just as obviously, he was not a false convert. He, he has grown now and has persevered and has proven himself in the local context And Paul now wants to take him and mentor him on the road. Now, interestingly, Paul has Timothy circumcised. And and we've just concluded the Jerusalem Council, wherein Paul argued that people shouldn't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. So why in the world does he circumcise Timothy here? It's important for us to wrestle our way through this. The Jerusalem Council determined that circumcision was not necessary in order for a person to become a Christian, meaning they determined that it had nothing to do with salvation. But of course, that's not to say that they outlawed circumcision altogether. There are other reasons why a person might decide to get circumcised. In Timothy's case, the reason has to do with his mixed heritage. He had a Jewish mother who had become a believer and a Greek father. And his Greek father had obviously objected to having Timothy circumcised. The tense of the verb that Luke uses here suggests that the father is now dead and therefore Timothy is free to do as he liked. And if he wanted to accompany Paul on his missionary journeys, it would just be a lot easier if he were circumcised as a Jew. Paul generally began his evangelism in a city by preaching in the Jewish synagogues. If he wanted Timothy to be welcomed in those circumstances then Timothy needed to embrace his Jewish heritage. Therefore, this was about missiological flexibility, not about getting saved. The Apostle Paul himself said that he was willing to do all manner of things for the sake of the mission. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. 1 Corinthians 9, 20-22. So if circumcision will open some doors for me to preach the gospel, Paul says, then I'm all for it. But if circumcision is part of the gospel, then I am entirely against it. Do you see the difference? Timothy was already saved. He wasn't getting circumcised in order to be saved. He was getting circumcised in order to increase his access to the lost people of that region. And that makes all the difference in the world. So they passed on the news from Jerusalem and the churches were encouraged and increased in numbers day by day. The story continues in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, here the story takes a bit of a twist. We would have expected Paul to head for Ephesus on the west coast of Asia Minor and from there to sail back either to Antioch or Jerusalem. That was the original plan. Paul has covered the northern part of the original mission route. But for some reason, Luke doesn't tell us why, but he decides to expand the trip. He goes north and through Phrygia and up into Mysia, which is south of the Black Sea. And there they were in some way prevented by the Spirit of Jesus to enter Bithynia. We'd love to know more about that. But eventually they come to Troas, which is on the northwest corner of Asia Minor, where in a dream Paul is told to cross over into Europe in order to preach the gospel there. This is an absolutely massive moment in the history of Christianity. If I could make an analogy here, Suppose you were on a mission trip to India and you landed in Delhi and then you went north to Chandigarh and then west from there towards Amritsar. And from there, your original plan was to go back to Delhi and fly home. But one night in your hotel room in Amritsar, you have a dream. And in the dream, you are told to cross the border into Pakistan and preach the gospel there. That is the sort of thing that's happening here. This trip gets a lot bigger and the scope gets a lot wider. This is the moment when Christianity jumps the curb and becomes a truly
1: global movement. Hey, Pastor Paul, I know we're a little bit short for time on this episode, but I want to jump in quickly here because I think this is another one of those stories that would make more sense if we had a map. (laughs) Uh, You've been throwing a lot of place names around in this episode, and I want to make sure that our listeners understand what's happening here. This isn't just a case of Paul taking a left turn at the intersection instead of a right turn. This story in Acts 16 represents the crossing of a significant cultural and geographic boundary— Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. When Paul
0: turned left at Troas instead of right, as you say, he did more than pick a new road. He picked a new continent. Mm. Up until this point, Paul's travels had been in small circles, all in what we today call Asia Minor, that hump of land just north of Lebanon and south of the city we today call Istanbul, meaning that Paul's first missionary journey happened inside the modern-day country of Turkey. But now, all of a sudden, he's crossing over into Europe, and the rest, as they say, is history.
1: Yeah, so to be clear, Christianity did not start out as a European religion, right? Because I think a lot of people believe that. They think Christianity began in Europe and then moved out, kind of colonial style, into Africa and the Middle East. But actually, it's the opposite of that. Exactly. Spell that out for us. Well, of course, the roots of this
0: movement are originally in Africa and the Middle East. All the formative stories in the Old Testament, right? So we think of the Exodus and Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, etc. All those stories take place either in Africa or the Middle East. And then all the stories about Jesus take place in those places as well. He was born in Bethlehem and then his parents took him down to Egypt and then he came back to Nazareth and then he was crucified in Jerusalem. So The roots of the movement are all there. And then as well, the base of the movement was all there. The story begins in Jerusalem, then spreads to Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria. And then it reaches out into Turkey. And then only after that, at stage four, we might say, did it cross over into Europe. So no, it is definitely not a European religion. It is an African and Middle Eastern religion that spread to Europe and from there to North America and the rest of the world.
1: I think that's important for people to know. Yeah, totally. All right, let's jump back into the story now at verse eleven.
0: So, setting trail from or setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Now we should probably stop here and just explain this shift from they to. We, you probably noticed that in verse 10, Luke has been saying, they did this and they did that. Now, all of a sudden he's saying, we did this and we did that. The most obvious explanation is that this was the point in the story where Luke himself joined the journey. Perhaps Luke was from Troas and he was converted by Paul. We don't know that. Luke doesn't tell us, but that is the most likely explanation and the one that most Christians have held to over the ages. Luke must have joined the journey in Troas. And with Paul and Silas and Timothy, they now cross over into Europe, landing in Philippi, intent on sowing the gospel in virgin soil. We pick up the story at verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Luke tells us that Paul and his companions began their evangelistic campaign in Philippi at a small prayer gathering on the Sabbath down by the river. Now, That's a bit of a departure from what we're used to hearing. Paul normally begins by preaching in the synagogue. And this little detail tells us that in all likelihood, the Jewish population in Philippi was very small. It took a minimum of 10 adult males to constitute a synagogue. And in the absence of such, they would simply designate a place for prayer. Obviously, Paul finds out where that is and makes his way there. Now, Luke is narrating for us selective stories that illustrate generally the sort of response that God blessed them with on this trip. The first such story he tells us is about a Jewish woman named Lydia. She's a businesswoman, a seller of purple goods. These would be dyed goods, and the description of her business implies that she traveled a fair bit and that she was very entrepreneurial. She didn't work for someone else. This was her business. Luke is telling us about the sort of people who came to Christ. They were from every segment of society, including, obviously, well-to-do Jewish businesswomen. Look also at what he says about her conversion. Look at verse 14 there. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She, She heard the word. God gave her the gift of understanding and faith. And then verse 15 says she was baptized and her whole household as well. We don't know if that means husband, children, servants, nothing specific is said. It just is clear that she believed as did others in her family unit. Verse 16 indicates that Paul was going frequently to this same location, this this prayer meeting probably over the course of several weeks. Luke narrates another representative story. He says as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination but there's a significant difference between the supernatural and the divine. This little girl was doing supernatural things. She was telling the crowd true things about someone she had never met. She was a fortune teller and apparently a pretty good one. And Luke tells us that she was doing all of this under possession to some sort of supernatural entity. But this was definitely not a work of God. This was cruel bondage. And the Apostle Paul saw that. And he was distressed in his spirit. And in the name of Jesus Christ, he set this little girl free. But her owners were not amused. Verse 19 says, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailers to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, here we see Paul submitting to a Roman beating that as a Roman citizen He should not have been forced to endure. And apparently this happened on at least two other occasions because he says in 2 Corinthians 11.25 that he endured the Roman beating with rods three times. So what's going on here? Why doesn't Paul play his citizenship card? The most likely answer is that he never got the chance in this particular instance. This was mob justice and the authorities did not do their due diligence in ascertaining the identity of the accused. Obviously, these are rough and tumble times. Verse 25 goes on to say, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Now, just pause here. This is remarkable. These men have just been subjected to a grave injustice. They've been arrested and denied their rights and treated as criminals without any sort of due process, despite that they've done nothing wrong. And here they are praying and singing hymns to God. They're not not texting their lawyers. They're not screaming bloody murder. They're praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. There is no better witness than calmly and graciously enduring injustice because it strongly hints at an inheritance in the heavenlies. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. Obviously, the prayers and hymns of Paul and Silas had made an impression on the jailer. He had been listening in and trying to figure it out. And then the earthquake was obviously God's means of setting them free. But then the fact that they stayed so that his life would be spared, all of that added up and convinced and convicted this Philippian jailer, and he was converted. He asks one of the best questions in all the Bible. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas give one of the best answers in all the Bible. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now that expression, you and your household, probably needs some explaining to our modern Western ears. I. Howard Marshall does a great job with that. He says, the New Testament takes the unity of the family seriously. And when salvation is offered to the head of the household, it is, as a matter of course, made available to the rest of the family group, including dependents and servants as well. It is, however, offered to them on the same terms. They, too, have to hear the word, believe, and be baptized. The jailer's own faith does not cover them. That is well and necessarily said. Verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. They encouraged them and departed. Paul is probably acting strategically here. He knows that the local magistrates have made a hash of this situation by allowing two Roman citizens to be beaten without a trial. They obviously are not intending to press charges, and therefore what they've done is entirely illegal. And Paul is worried that if he lets it go, it could embolden the magistrates to continue informally harassing the new Christian community. I'm sure it made quite an impression on the first converts to see the local authorities apologizing to Paul and Silas. There is a right time to assert your civil rights. And the right time is when the assertion of those rights serves the cause of the Great Commission and the freedom of the church generally to operate without harassment inside the culture. This wasn't about Paul. This was about keeping the door
1: wide open open for gospel witness in the region. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I'm curious about the story there at the end of Acts 16, because I imagine that both Presbyterians and Baptists might call upon that story to support their view of baptism. The Presbyterian folks might say, hey, look at that, the whole household of the jailer was baptized upon his profession of faith, not just him. So that supports infant baptism. And then the Baptist might say, well, notice that he heard... He believed and then was baptized. So that supports credo baptism or believer's baptism. So who's right or are they both right?
0: Well, I think your question demonstrates why this conversation has been going on for a very long time, Mm. because there are texts that do seem to commend both approaches. And so I doubt very much that I can definitively decide this issue in the 20 seconds we have left in the program. (laughs) Come on, I believe (laughs) in you. Well, I'm flattered, also deeply concerned.
1: (laughs) Okay, fair enough.
0: But let me just say this. I would argue that what the Baptists are saying is a little more straightforward, at least. And of course, I say that as a person with Baptist convictions. But The text does clearly say that the jailer heard, believed, and then was baptized. So that's our preferred way of doing things. We like to baptize people after they have heard the gospel and intelligently, knowingly, and credibly responded in faith to what they have heard. That is a conviction that reflects a plain, straightforward reading of the text. When Presbyterians or Anglicans or Dutch Reformed brothers and sisters appeal to this text, They're forced to make an argument from silence. The text says that the whole household of the jailer was baptized, and they point out that most households at that time would have included some small children, and so the assumption is that some babies were baptized on that day, but that's an assumption as opposed to an explicit statement. And, you know, as grandma used to say, bad things happen when we make assumptions. (laughs) If the text said the whole household of the jailer was baptized, including his infant daughter, Susie, then I would be the most fervent Presbyterian you've ever met. (laughs) But it doesn't say that. And so I'm sticking with my conviction on believers baptism now. In fairness to my Presbyterian friends, they would probably say that their best arguments for infant baptism don't come from this text. They come out of the Old Testament and the practice there of circumcision, which was done even to covenant children. But that's a
1: discussion for another day. All right. Fair enough. Thank you for that. I think it was longer than 20 seconds, by the way. But as always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.